Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. WQAD Podcast Network. The Cities with Jim Mertens, a production of WQPT, PBS for the Quad Cities region, a podcast in partnership with WQAD. What's going on in the Quad Cities? Activities, events, fun, politics, sports, local issues and opinions. And now, your host, Jim Mertens. I'm Jim Mertens, and this is The Cities. Illinois is clamping down once again. COVID-19 positivity rates are hitting new highs in northwest Illinois. That includes Whiteside County, Carroll, Joe Davies counties, and the counties all around it, including Rockford. Governor J.B. Pritzker imposing more restrictions to limit gatherings in that area. And in the Quad City area, the positivity rate is also climbing, and health leaders fear new restrictions will be coming to this region as well. So what is happening on the front line? We talked with the Chief Executive Officer of Community Health Care, Tom Bowman, at the Center's Rock Island Clinic. Are we seeing this latest surge, this latest increase in our area? Is this any different than what we saw in the spring? Uh, you know, that's, that's hard to say about what the what the drivers are uh, that were happening in the spring uh, compared to now, but it's, it's very similar. You know, the, the rates of positivity have been up and down, but this has been a pr- pretty consistent spike, uh, which we also saw after Memorial Day. Um, and so it's, it's very similar in that nature. We're, we're seeing it go up. It's um, just trending in the wrong direction right now. Yeah, so absolutely. it's similar I, whether or not it's the same causes. But you kind of look at what's different now than perhaps earlier this summer, and then you think, okay, school's in session. You had Labor Day. I mean, what, what, is there one thing that we can attribute some of this to? Uh, boy, I, you know, there are probably a number of different things that we could attribute it to. When, when we look at it and talk with our patients, you know, it's, it, some of it is fatigue. Um, just people want to get together uh, for various reasons, and, and you're seeing a lot of that. A lot of activities, schools, as you mentioned, is certainly one of those. So people are coming in contact uh, more and more. And so I, I think there's some fatigue from following all the, the guidelines that have been recommended. And so people have sort of given up in some ways. Um, and so I think, I think there's a number of different factors, but yeah, I, just more people um, in, in enclosed spaces, um, fewer restrictions on bars and, and restaurants, things of that nature. So uh, when you have that and you have community spread, you're gonna see those numbers start to rise. Community health care serves a, a, perhaps a little different uh, group of patients than, than a hospital does. A hospital is all widespread. Community health care also widespread, but you see a lot of minorities. You see a lot of people of, of lower economic abilities. And, and in the beginning, in the spring, it was hitting those groups particularly hard. Are you still seeing that now in the fall? Yeah, you know, that's a very interesting uh, statistic. Honestly, when we've looked uh, at Scott County, Rock Island County, both, you're starting to see the um, disparities or the number of people, in, especially in the Hispanic and African-American communities, the, the rates of positivity aren't really that much different than the uh, census information uh, as far as breakdowns and percentages for those groups. So we are seeing a narrowing. It's not nearly as um, nearly as much of a difference as we are seeing early, and I think there's a number of uh, reasons behind that, but um, yeah, it's it's a good thing is that we're not seeing the same disparities that we were early on in the pandemic. 
Yeah, and, and a lot of that has to do also, of course, with, with the place of work early in the pandemic. We were seeing meatpacking plants in particular where the, where the spikes were coming, perhaps not so much in Scott County. Well, maybe because of the Joslin plant, Scott, and, and Rock Island County as well, and Whiteside County. But, but now, and, and also the other discussion was that uh, uh, some minority groups are much more closer-knit as far as families are concerned. Is that still, because the governor, Governor Pritzker, is saying, hey, look, uh, one of the biggest factors is family gatherings and, and meeting up with uh, family members. Yeah, I mean, that's that's pretty um, typical. You see a lot of times in, in Hispanic communities or um, in other minority communities, a lot of times they're housing. Um, they live in family groups uh, more often than you'll see in, in comparable white families. And so, um, yeah, you do see that just uh, living. And if you are in underserved communities or low-income communities, a lot of times you're living in larger housing complexes where people are gathered in more tightly. And so I think those were all contributing factors early on uh, to the spread in those communities in particular. And then the other thing that we've been noticing in the statistics locally is that the large increase of people who are younger who have tested positive, particularly even among 20-year-olds, which in Rock Island County is the largest number of positive tests were 20 to 29-year-old people. Yeah, um, I think that goes back to some of the fatigue. I think it goes back to uh, more events where, where uh, young people are getting together. Um, you know, feel, that feeling of invincibility, you know, we were all that age at one point and uh, we weren't that concerned about, about getting sick. And I think you see that um, playing out in our community um, as well as other communities around the country. And because of that, that invincibility, do they you know, seek treatment less? I mean, uh, or do they come only when their symptoms are at the worst? Yeah, that's hard to, hard to say for sure, but I, I think we have seen that at least anecdotally, um, not even just amongst our patients, but also just in the community. You know, people, they don't want to be off work a lot of times or they don't want to miss out on events. Uh, so if they feel like the cases are mild or moderate and they're, they're not feeling too bad, um, I think we're seeing people that would just rather not go get tested because if they are positive, they know that they're going to be under a quarantine for a period of time, which uh, limits their ability to do the things they want to do. So I think from that aspect, yeah, we've seen some impacts um, of people just not wanting to get tested. Um, in that age group. We have learned a lot about contact tracing in the last few months. And of course, the health departments are the ones that are actively involved in finding out when a person has actually tested positive, who they've been in contact with, what were they doing in the past few days, who else could be exposed to try to limit the uh, spread of this virus. Do you do any of that? I mean, do you keep an eye on, on the patients that have tested positive or are being treated at community health? Well, we, we definitely report back to our patients on their test results, and, and then we try to connect them with the contact tracer. So we also report uh, to both of the health departments. And I, you know, I would be remiss, Jim, if I didn't uh, mention the health departments and all the work that they've done on this front. This uh, contact tracing is uh, a huge undertaking. Sometimes people have been in, in contact with you know, 20, 30, 40 people, and to be able to contact all those people uh, for one case is, is just a huge accomplishment when they can get it done and so um, but we we generally work pretty closely with both health departments that's that's kind of their um, that's the public health's role uh, in the pandemic I think locally and so um, we we kind of leave it up to them but we do follow up with every patient that we test uh, here at community health care with their results and and what does that follow-up entail I mean what 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 is done once you follow up yeah so when we follow up with them uh, you know if it's a positive test 
then we will let them know that somebody from the health department is going to be contacting them to discuss their contact tracing and who they've who where they've been who they've been in contact with those those types of things we also give them care instructions so our, we'll have one of our clinicians will discuss you know these are the these are the typical signs and symptoms. This is how uh, COVID works. This is what you should do to protect yourself and your family members. So we give them that guidance uh, to kind of get the ball rolling there. And then uh, they'll have contacts from the health departments who will just give them more detail and, and go through that contact tracing. And how receptive have your patients been? Because as you know, the health department has said and really has stressed when it comes to contact tracing, be honest. Don't try to cover up anything. It's not that people are judging you. It's just that they want to trace this back to a source. Yeah, I think they're they're pretty uh, compliant with those things, and uh, but we do, you know, when you work with underserved populations, a lot of times um, phones uh, don't get answered, or they have a change of phone, or maybe they're um, at a different residence by the time you're going to contact them back. So there's there's those challenges of just tracking people down, which is um, kind of. A, big, a bigger issue when you're when you're working with underserved communities and so there are some challenges around that but I think when we are able to reach patients and especially if, if we have the right language which we we run into language barriers here at CHC pretty often um, I you know having had the trust of, of seeing their provider here and having the test done here and and having already talked to our clinical staff I think we we try to lay that lay that out for them that they do need to answer those calls when it comes from the health department. Well, as you said, I mean, there's a frustration and there's a fatigue level among the public. I'd assume it's the same as far as medical uh, uh, specialists and, and your doctors and your nurses that are all there. What is it like inside Community Health Center as far as your employees are concerned? Uh, you know, I think there is some change fatigue, no doubt, as, as uh, most uh, healthcare organizations did at the beginning of the pandemic, we had to shift very quickly. You know, we, we closed down our clinics from in-person visits for a number of months. Um, we've slowly built back some in-person with a lot of screening procedures. So we, we have to change everything about how we even just take a patient in through the front door. Um, but then utilizing telehealth um, and video visits for a lot of patients. Um, our providers had to uh, get new training. Our, our nursing staff had to get new training. Um, so there's, there's just a whole bunch of new ways to serve a patient that I think many of these will stick around after the pandemic, but all that change coming in such a short amount of time uh, has, has been a lot of fatigue. I think uh, from our staff though, some of the things that they're most concerned about is, um, you know, people, people not following social distancing, not wearing masks out in public. You know, they are here to serve and treat uh, people that, that uh, come in contact with COVID. And it's, it's frustrating when we see that in the community. And, um, we, you know, we don't really understand these, these uh, basic procedures are not hard to follow. And so I think there's some frustration level on that side of it. Um, we want to treat you, but we've, we've got to try to slow this thing down too if we can. So if people will follow those directions, that would help everybody. Well, and the other thing, as, as you pointed out, I mean, this has been a long time and this virus is also affecting different people in so many different ways. Um, some have respiratory problems, uh, uh, some lose, you know, the sense of uh, taste or smell. Is this, I mean, have you noticed that there's different changes since March on how people are feeling if they're infected by the virus? No, I think, I think we've learned more about what's common amongst uh, different patients, but you know, those, those signs and symptoms haven't changed a whole lot. You know, a lot of it is uh, you start to get mild 
uh, respiratory symptoms, difficulty breathing, as you mentioned. Taste and smell is um, definitely one of those that's an early, early indicator. So a lot of those things have been consistent all the way uh, through. So um, we haven't seen major swings. They just they sort of keep adding different uh, different symptoms, and so we've tried to keep up with that. But uh, some of those main mainstays are still the same as they were early. Community Health Center has had to deal with this, of course, since March. You've gone through the, the rising numbers. Like I said, this is the fifth time that the numbers have started to climb. But this one seems different because we're heading into fall and winter. It, it, are you prepared for this? Uh, we're we're prepared as we can be right now, and we continue to make uh, additional preparations. You know, some of the stuff that we do outside as the weather turns is going to make it uh, more difficult for our patients and our staff. So we're trying to figure out how we can uh, isolate areas within our building so that people with respiratory illness aren't coming into contact uh, with others who are in for healthy visits and that sort of thing. So there's still preparations to be made, but we are planning for that. Um, we always have a, a surge plan where if we need to switch to more telehealth, we can do that on a pretty short uh, period of time. So there, there's preparations that, that have been made and then we continue uh, to make more. But, you know, we're also, uh, we've geared up for more flu shots uh, this year than we have any other year. One of the main things we want to do is make sure that uh, the, the respiratory illness that is coming, um, that we do have a vaccine for, we want to make sure as many people get that vaccine uh, so that they're not dealing with both flu and COVID at the same time, for yeah, sure. Because I was going to say is that Community Health has got ongoing flu shot clinics at, at, at all of your locations. I mean, it seems that medical professionals are saying this is the time, if you've never had a flu shot before, this is the time to get one now, not only for your health, but also to uh, stop any you know, major group of people showing up at the hospital with both illnesses. Correct. Yeah, and we've, you know, this isn't un unusual. Every year we are pushing for flu shots, um, as, and we're kind of shouting that from the mountaintops as much as we can because it, it, the flu is a, is a very dangerous respiratory illness as well. But, you know, this year in particular, when you have both of these circulating in the community, if you can get a flu shot and it protects you um, and helps lessen your symptoms, even if you do get the flu, um, we want to try to drive down the use of the hospital. So a lot of flu patients, when they, when they get to a certain point, they may need hospitalization. Well, we don't want them in there if we also have a surge in COVID and we need to be, be treating people in the ICUs at the hospitals. The hospitals have seen uh, sort of record, record number of hospitalizations for COVID here of late. So anything we can do to eliminate at least uh, one of the two, uh, is what we want to go ahead and do. And I think you underline something else is that, I mean, all I do when I'm talking to you, it seems, is talk COVID, COVID, COVID. And there are other, of course, still other illnesses. There are other diseases that you're treating. This is just added to those. Are, are you worried about, well, first off, are you worried about uh, people ignoring their health because they want to avoid healthcare centers because of their fear of COVID? Yeah, I think you see some of that. And I think, though, the hospital systems and CHC and, and the health department, I think we've had uh, good messages in this community about uh, trying to keep people from doing that. Exactly. Um, that's always one of the biggest fears is that people will just avoid care altogether, which uh, is not the right answer. We have we've created different options, like I've said, with telehealth or um, our outdoor flu clinics or our outdoor um, COVID clinics, those types of things to make the care as safe as possible and, and to try to keep people who might be infectious away from those that aren't. So we're doing a ton of messaging on that. It's certainly a concern. 
Um, we have heard from some patients that they just don't want to come in, and many of them have underlying conditions, hypertension, diabetes, uh, cardiovascular disease, those types of things. And so uh, some of them shouldn't come in, honestly, and so we've had to try to find ways to interact with them differently. Let's talk a little bit about your telehealth program. Telehealth really isn't that new, but it was starting to catch on over the last five years. A big deal, of course, in rural areas as well, where access to medical care can be miles away. You seem to be pushing the telecare right now because it's what? Quick, easy, and you're doing it from home. Well, there's a number, there's a number of positives. Uh, certainly, somebody being able to do it from home, we know how many patients, especially in underserved communities that have difficulty with transportation. Uh, they might live close, but it might take three or four bus um, exchanges before they're able to get to the doctor's office, right? So um, anything we can do to, to lessen that, and, and many times they want to come in for something that can very easily be diagnosed and treated um, through talking with a, a healthcare professional. And then when you start to talk about chronic disease management, people that are in control of their diabetes or their cardiovascular hypertension, those types of things, they may not always have to come in and see the doc face to face. A lot of those things can be managed through a, a conversation over video as long as they're in control. And then if, if they are not or they're having um, increased symptoms and those types of things, then we can refer them back into the clinic. So the, the in-person treatment is never gonna be totally replaced. This is just a more convenient option for the patient uh, many times and also makes sense for the type of uh, disease that they're, they're managing. Is that the biggest change you think as far as delivering uh, medical care in the age of COVID or, or are there other things that you're doing right now? Uh, you know, I think probably the biggest change has been the safety measures that we've taken inside. You know, checking people at the door, checking temperatures, uh, asking all the, the screening questions having people change gowns and gloves and masks and, and trying to source all of those things. A great example is in our dental clinic, um, a ton of screening or, or cleaning between dental visits prior to COVID always had to happen and now it's even more. So it slows down uh, the number of patients that we can, we can see in a day. We have to space them out to give ourselves time for that transition between patient, uh, which ultimately affects access. If we can't see as many patients, uh, fewer patients are gonna be able to come in and, and receive that care. So I think that's probably the biggest change that's, that's ongoing. Um, but from a technology standpoint, we're, we're seeing definitely telehealth is, we'll see, I, I'm hoping it's here to stay. That will require some effort on the part of the legislature um, in both states to uh, make sure that, the, that telehealth can be uh, reimbursed properly for healthcare providers. But, but we think it's a, an advantage uh, for the patients and for the healthcare system. And you did point out the dental aspect of community health. And, and let's be honest, you've got to sometimes grab people kicking and screaming to come to see a dentist. Um, how has that been impacted? Because as you said, you're using more safety measures. Uh, some people just neglect their dental care, which leads to so many other diseases or, or illnesses. Um, what has happened with the dental side of your clinic? Yeah, so we were shut down in dental uh, almost 100% because it, it, dental does not really lend itself to telehealth to fill in. Um, so we did a little bit of that. We were screening for emergencies and that sort of thing on dental. We were able to, you know, if you had a camera, we could take a look and see if you had swelling and those types of things and talk the patient through what they needed to do. But we were completely shut down for indoor care for a number of months, um, which was really a challenge. And so. Um, but now we're, we're opening it up again. Uh, right now we're trying to work through the backlog. 
Um, we did have patients that delayed or maybe they went to another provider who um, felt more confident that they could open safely. We, we tended to, to err on the side of caution on that front, so we were a little bit later in, in reopening the clinics. But also just the amount of um, personal protective equipment that's needed in the dental where you have um, a spray and, and, well, it's gross, but spit and everything else coming out in the dental clinic is um, something that you have to account for. So you want to make sure you have plenty of PPE um, to change in between patients. And, and that was a hard thing for us to source for a while uh, during the, the early parts of the pandemic. As a healthcare administrator, you have to not only worry about today, but very much planning ahead. Tell me how community health is dealing with this because you're getting an influx of COVID patients. You're having all the other issues that people have. Um, and, and it's gotta be tough uh, for healthcare centers right now. Yeah, it, it is tough. Um, we have been uh, fortunate um, through the CARES Act and, and some other federal sources. We've, we've gotten funding, certainly the local philanthropic um, community here in the Quad Cities is very generous. So we've, we've qualified for some grants that have helped us um, purchase necessary supplies and pay for additional staff when we've needed it and those types of things. So um, that's kind of the short term, but long term, um, you know, we don't know how long the pandemic is going to last. So is that part of long term or short term? We're unsure. We're hopeful it's short term uh, from here. So, but when we come out of the pandemic, we do anticipate, you know, the economy is going to continue to have some challenges. We think more patients will be seeking out care at, uh, at a place like community health care. So we just have to make sure that we have uh, well-trained staff, um, that we get our workflows down so that we can treat them safely and, and make sure that um, we, we provide as much access to our services as possible. And, and that comes from a dedicated team that knows our mission here, and it comes from uh, the ability to, to try new things, and um, whether it's telehealth or it's um, you know, flu shot clinics on the weekends or, or mobile care out uh, to groups instead of having them come down to the clinics. Uh, those are things that we're going to do, and, and we're making plans for all of those things. Give me your perspective as we're heading into later into the fall and more to the winter season. I mean, this growing number of positive cases, is there an end in Well, it's obviously going to be an end in sight, but sooner rather than later? Um, you know, the, the challenge will be, I, I th we're hopeful we'll see a, a vaccine yet this year. I think um, you hear that often on national news that a vaccine is coming. The, the concern we have is how, how long will it take to get out to all the people that need it? Um, you know, and so we, we really anticipate we're going to be in this mode and we're planning to be in, in this mode until at least summer of next year. But I'm hoping that's um, pessimistic and not optimistic. Um, but we're also working with our county health departments, with our hospital systems, with both states on what the distribution plans would be if there is a COVID-19 uh, vaccine yet this year. So. Um, hopefully we can get the vaccine out and we can get out enough um, quantity and, and cover enough people that we can start to get to that herd immunity that we need in this community uh, through a vaccine. Our thanks to Tom Bowman, Chief Executive Officer for the Community Health Center. Thank you so much and, and, and pass along our thanks to your staff. I mean, Yeoman's job in an area that you just don't want to be in. And it's like, it's like a firefighter running into a fire where these healthcare workers are making sure that they're there for these COVID patients and these other patients who, who may be infected and sick. Yep, we love our staff. They're, they're dedicated and resilient and they, they want to serve this community. So uh, they've just been fantastic. So I, I appreciate you having us on. The Chief Executive Officer of Community Healthcare, Tom Bowman at the center's Rock Island Clinic. Thanks for listening to The Cities with Jim Mertens.
and watch the cities Thursday nights at 7, Sunday afternoon at 4, and Monday night at 6 on WQPT, PBS for the Quad Cities region. WQAD Podcast Network.